The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, now I want you to note for announcements that George Meisinger is going to have surgery Monday afternoon. Somehow we got some... Wrong information that it was going to be Thursday the 30th, but it will be Monday the 27th. And the last word I got was that it will be at 3 in the afternoon, so we need to pray for that. Also, don't forget, no class next week on Tuesday or Thursday, because I will be teaching at uh, Preston City Bible Church. Also, the last Tuesday in July, there will be uh, no class. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure that we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have the freedom and the privilege to gather together as believers to study your word. We thank you for all of those who, down through the decades in the history of this nation, have served their country and have uh, been willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, and in so many cases did make the ultimate sacrifice, to purchase our freedom on the battlefield. Freedom to worship, to study your word, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we have not only had these freedoms bought with the precious blood of those who have died for it for our country, but for the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ who paid for our sins. And we pray that we would be mindful of all that you have done for us in our salvation and in our spiritual life, that we might not take these things for granted, but that we would be serious about our study of your word and our application of it in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One other announcement, and that has to do with the Conservative Theological Society meeting that will be in Dallas the first week of August. That's from Monday morning, August the 1st, until about noon on Wednesday, August the 3rd. And you can check it out on their website, which is linked to Tyndale Seminary. And I think Tyndale's website is tyndale.edu. And if you're interested in that, Charlie Clough will be speaking. He will be teaching three sessions. Wayne House, who is a good friend of mine, 
Uh, he will also be teaching three sessions. The subject is going to be on uh, prophecy and eschatology, so that will be very, uh, very interesting. Okay, we're in Hebrews chapter 1, and we are down to verse 4. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, as we're working our way through this prologue. The prologue sets the stage for everything in Hebrews. And verse 4 serves as a conclusion to the prologue, but it provides a transition into the next section. Hebrews 1.4 reads, Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. This is the conclusion of the writer's opening remarks, where he is primarily hitting two ideas. The first idea is the grammatical subject and predicate of the sentence, and that is that in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son. And once he mentions the Son, he goes through a list of seven things that emphasize the superiority of the Son, that Jesus as the Son is not emphasizing his sonship, as the eternal Son of God, but His Messianic Sonship, which we also refer to as His Davidic Sonship. And that will uh, come out very clearly in this particular verse. And he emphasizes His future destiny as the heir of all things in verse 2. And that will be picked up on again at the end of verse 4, that He has now inherited a more excellent name than the angels. Now, when we come to this last statement, we recognize that, that he, the writer has been driving to this particular point. We know that because the rest of the chapter, from verse 5 down through verse 14, is designed to explain or give the basis for this final statement in verse 4, that Jesus Christ has inherited a name that is more excellent than that of the angels. Now, this is a very complex verse grammatically in the Greek because the writer wants us to uh, make sure that we get the point that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. And that is a point of comparison, a, a point of excellence, that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. And so he's making this comparison, this contrast between Jesus Christ on the one hand and the angels on the other hand. And to do that, he sets up about four or five comparatives in the sentence, which is very unusual. You don't catch a sense of that in the English because it just, it would almost lose sense if you translated it uh, very literally, but the grammar there emphasizes this comparison. He doesn't want the readers to miss the point. So the way I want to deal with this is to begin by just highlighting the comparatives that are in the verse, and then we'll come back and hit some of the more substantive words. So he begins with the phrase, having become, and then you have the word so much in the English, which is a translation of the Greek intensifier Tus utu, tus uto, which is an intensifier, and it means so great, so much, or so much more, and it is linked to the comparative, uh, genitive of comparison, this adjective, better, which is the Greek word kriton, 
Crytone. And it's a genitive of comparison, and it Crytone in its core meaning has the idea of something that is more prominent or higher in rank. And I've underlined that on the screen because that's the idea here, is that Jesus Christ is superior in rank to the angels. So the tus uto indicates his superiority, and that brings in the idea so much And then the word greater, being a comparison, is higher in rank. He is so much higher in rank. And then we have a comparative genitive, um, more excellent. This is the word diaphoroteron, that teron at the end tells us that it's a comparative. It's uh, You have very few superlatives in Koine Greek, and it is a comparative meaning more excellent outstanding or superior. And so this is our third sense of comparison in this. The so much, the better, and now the more excellent. And then you have your comparisons that come in with than the angels and than they. Now, the point that is made here is that you have a that the Son is superior to the angels. And if we were to just break this down in a very simple, almost paraphrase in English, what the writer is saying is that the Son is greater than the angels because God gave him a higher status than they. It's a very simple idea. But the grammar that he uses is very complex in order to make sure you get that comparative point, that the Son is greater than the angels. So if you just want to write that down as a basic sense of the passage, it's the Son is greater than the angels because God gave him a greater status than they. Okay, now let's go back to the first word in the verse. I know this, I got it out of order, but I wanted to emphasize that comparative stuff first so that you get the point that the writer is making in the Greek. The first word in the verse is the aorist middle participle of genomai. Now, this is an interesting word to use here, and it has some meanings that aren't readily apparent to an English reader. In English, we translate this having become. We have the word become, and we also have the English word is, and we call these Uh, existential verbs. That's a fancy term for words that talk about something that is or something that exists, something that happens, something that becomes. And the word is, in English, it's the same as in Greek, the word is emphasizes ongoing existence. So that we, if we were to go to John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. Now, was is a past tense, of the Greek amy, which is that word that we would use for is. It's the past tense. And it indicates ongoing existence there in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, ongoing existence. In contrast, you get down to, I think it's verse 4, verse 5 of John chapter 1, and it says, there came a man named John. Now, the difference is that the logos in John 1.1 is a me. He continually exists. But in John 1, 
5, you have this shift to John the Baptist as a man who came into existence, and the writer shifts from a me to genomai, because genomai indicates a change of status, something that comes into existence that wasn't in existence before, or something that changes its status. It becomes something that it was not. So when we're talking about God the Son, and we're talking about change, we have to recognize that 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 has to be talking about what? His deity or his humanity? Well, in his deity, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So immediately we have to conclude this can't be discussing a title or qualifications that relate to the deity of Christ, but qualities that relate to his humanity. Now, the reason we have to make this point is because throughout this section, there's an emphasis on the sonship of Christ. He has, in these last days, spoken to us by means of his Son, in verse 2. In verse 5, we'll read a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7, Thou art my Son, today I have begotten thee. And then in the second part of verse 5, there's a quote from Psalm, uh, from 2 Samuel 7:14. Uh, He shall be a son to me. And then down in verse 8, but of the son, he says. And then as we go through this, we see the son, the son, the son. What were we talking about? Which sonship? Remember, there are the different sonships of Jesus. He's the son of man. He's the son of Adam. He's the son of Mary. He's the uh, son of Adam. He's the son of uh, God. Which, he's the son of David, which sonship are we talking about? The other titles all relate to his humanity, but the Son of God relates to his deity. So which is in focus? A human title. So what the emphasis is, if you want to get beneath the surface of this text, and I'm not talking about a sort of a hidden allegorical super spiritual meaning. I'm talking about being able to read the passage in light of of what's happened in the Old Testament, is that we're talking about the Davidic sonship of Jesus, that he is that promised Messiah. So the verse begins that he has become something that he was not. And in his humanity, in the first advent, he was born a human being lower than the angels. We'll get into this again in Hebrews, I think it's in Hebrews 5. Uh, I may be wrong on that, I'm just going off the top of my head, but in either chapter 4 or 5, we go back to the psalm that he was created a little lower than the angels and then he's elevated above the angels. So we're going to get into that point. So he is uh, incarnate as a human being and during the incarnation, during the period that he is on the earth, He is lower than the angels, and the angels are ministering to him in his humanity. But after he made purification of sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father because he had become, that's the uh, aorist participle sense here, he sat down because he had become so much better than the angels. And that takes place, that event took place at the ascension of Christ that he became so much better 
than the angels. And we studied that last time and showed some cross-references in Hebrews, or in Ephesians chapter 1 and some other places, that at the ascension, Jesus Christ ascended over the angels and is put in authority over all of the angels, all the principalities and powers in heaven. This is what is referred to here. Then the passage reads, before we get on to the next word, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And this is a comparative. The Greek is para autus, and it is simply another form of comparison. And we have the same thing, excuse me, back up. We have the same thing with than the angels. So you have two places of comparison here. And the key idea in the middle of the text is the noun, uh, or excuse me, the verb, kleronomeo. Uh, he inherits, he has by inheritance obtained a more ne- excellent name than they. So we see a contrast here between verse 2, where Jesus Christ is appointed heir of all things, and that inheritance is yet future. But the inheritance spoken of in verse 4 is an inheritance that took place at the resurrection when he received a more excellent name than the angels. Now, that next phrase, name, is important. What does it mean to receive a name more excellent than they? And the change of name in the ancient world indicates a change of position, a change of privilege, and a change of status. And the more excellent name, even though the writer doesn't indicate it, the more excellent name is that name that applies to sonship. We'll see that as we get into the next verse. So that is the more excellent name. He is the son. That's why the writer goes right ahead in verse 5 and says, Well, to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? That's the name that that he has received that is more excellent than the angels. So if we were to translate this in a little more literal fashion, we would translate it this way. Having become as much greater than the angels as the name which he has inherited is superior to theirs. That's a more literal translation. Having become as much greater than the angels as the name. Notice you have one comparison as much greater, another comparison as the name, and then a final which is superior to theirs. So it's it's very complicated if you take a strict literal translation having become as much greater than the angels as the name which he has inherited is superior to theirs. And the point is that at the ascension, Jesus Christ is elevated in his humanity to a position of authority over the angels. He already had that authority in his deity as the eternal Son of God. But as the human Son of David... As the uh, human Messiah, he is now elevated 
to a position higher than the angels. Now, this is a concept that is just loaded with implications, not only for the church age today, but for the ultimate working out of God's kingdom plan on planet Earth. Now, having said that, the writer feels a need to explain it a little bit. And we think about this explanation, and he's made this simple statement that Jesus Christ is elevated over the angels, and he's got a name superior to to theirs. And then the writer moves into an explanation in verse 5 that extends down to verse 14. This is the first major exposition in Hebrews. I pointed out at the beginning there's five expositions, five warning passages. This is the first major, major exposition, and it's a development of factual data related to who Jesus Christ is from the Old Testament. In fact, as you look at these verses, beginning in verse 5 down to verse 14, you will probably notice in your Bible that they all seem to be in, in, in small caps or in some versions use italics to indicate that they are taken from the Old Testament. These are all quotes from the Old Testament. And in these ten verses, there are eight quotations from the Old Testament. There are eight quotations from the Old Testament, and seven of these come out of the Psalms, and one comes out of Isaiah chapter 61. So we're going to have to take a little time to go back and look at these verses in their original context. This is one of the great things about studying Hebrews, is that if you don't know the Old Testament, you're really lost in this study because the writer uses so many allusions, illustrations, and direct quotes from the Old Testament. So we'll just take a a side note here and look at how the Old Testament is used in the book of Hebrews. Very important to understand this. First point, in the book of Hebrews, the writer quotes 29 Old Testament passages. Through the course of this book, he quotes 29 Old Testament passages. Actually, there are 35 quotations, but the other six are repetitious. He quotes from Psalm 110.1, Several times he quotes from Psalm 2-7 a couple of times. He quotes from Psalm 110-4 several times. So you can see right off the bat that Psalm 2 and Hebrew, excuse me, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are crucial for understanding the thrust of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to us. And the interesting thing is, is that those are the same verses that are foundational to understanding the ascension and session of Jesus Christ. So we get into that, as I pointed out last time in our review of the ascension of Christ, that this doctrine of the ascension and session underlies the entire epistle. And so the writer is developing for us the implications of that doctrine and challenging us with its reality that we need to grow and mature as believers simply because we understand what Christ is now doing at the session. It's not simply that he is there as our defense attorney. It's not simply that he's there as our high priest. He is doing other things during this period of time related to our future ministry as kings and priests during the millennial kingdom. So 29 Old Testament passages 
are quoted in the course of the book. Of these, 23 of them come out of the Psalms or the Pentateuch. The Psalms or the Pentateuch. So that tells you right away that you need to understand those first five books of the Old Testament in order to get through some of this, and of course the Psalms. And that part of the reason he quotes from these two areas is because among Jews, these were the most widely read and widely known Old Testament books. So he's a good preacher in the sense that he's going to uh, build his message off of known Old Testament passages. He goes to the Pentateuch because that's where the law is stated. And in the law, there is a tremendous amount of Christology, and it's also related to the Old Testament, and he has to deal with why the Old Covenant is no longer in effect. And then he goes to the Psalms because the Psalms also provide us with a tremendous amount of information uh, through prophecy related to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the second point that we ought to observe in his use of the Old Testament is that every reference to Jesus Christ, when he's dealing with Jesus Christ in terms of prophecy, he goes to the Psalms. Uh, And, for example, in this first chapter, they're all from the Psalms except for the last uh, quotation, which is, or excuse me, except for the one in um, uh, verse 10 or 11, which is from Psalm 61. 11 and 12 from Psalm 61. Now, a third point that's another interesting observation which relates to the canon of Scripture and the authority of the Word of God. He doesn't use the formulaic expressions that Paul uses. He doesn't say, as it is written. He doesn't say, as the Scripture says. He just says, he just quotes it as if it comes right from the mouth of God. He never mentions the original writer, he never talks about Jeremiah or Isaiah or as David said, which is what you'll find in Acts or Romans or some of the other New Testament books. Now, the implication of that is that he recognizes there's a human author, but that's not relevant. What's important is this comes straight out of the mouth of God. So if you look at how he uses the Old Testament, he uses it as if he expects his audience to recognize that this is authoritative, this is God speaking to us, this isn't something that is just cobbled together by men. They're not just writing down their experiences with God. You see, this is how most Christians today think of the Bible. This is just human writings about, uh, about their own experiences uh, with God, their own religious experiences. But the writer of Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament as if it's authoritative. Human authorship is not significant. It is the very Word of God. Fourth point, in observing how he uses the Scripture, he doesn't make a distinction between the past written word and, in his time frame, the present spoken word to the writer. Not our present, but his present. He's not making a difference between the Old Testament, which was written, and he had a completed closed canon, and the present written word and spoken word that is coming under inspiration. So when he moves through the passages, he recognizes that the Holy Spirit is the author of both. And so they have equal authority.
A fifth point, also related to the canon, is that when he quotes all of these Old Testament passages, he's not quoting from the Hebrew Old Testament. He's quoting from the Septuagint. Now, remember, the Septuagint was a translation. He quotes from the Septuagint, and the Septuagint doesn't always agree with the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, that's an interesting thing to think about when you're trying to work your way through an understanding of the inspiration of Scripture. What that tells you is a number of things about language. Number one, it tells you that even when the writers of Scripture are the translators of Scripture, let me correct that, when the translators of Scripture didn't get it quite right, the Word of God is dynamic enough for the Holy Spirit to still use it. And so the Septuagint has a number of flaws in it, a number of places where it changes a word meaning here or there, and they would get graded down for that in any translation class. But nevertheless, the... Uh, Holy Spirit can still use it. Another point, especially relevant now after we've watched all this uh, nonsense on television related to uh, allegations about flushing the Koran down the commodes in Guantanamo, is that uh, in, in, in Islam, God's Word, the Koran, their concept of God, Allah's word. Let me use that phrase so I'll avoid confusion. Allah's word can only be accurately understood in the original Arabic. See, they have a truncated view of language, a rigid view of language, that you can't truly understand Allah other than in the original Arabic. So it's, you know, Muslims have to learn Arabic or they can't understand what God said. But in The Bible, you have this picture of God who is the author of all language. He's the one who scattered all the languages, remember, at the Tower of Babel. He scatters all the languages, and God is the ultimate architect of all human language so that he designs human language in such a way that he's not restricted in his communication of his word to one language. He can communicate it in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic but that it can be translated and the truth of it can be maintained in another language, in English, in German, in Latin, French, Chinese, all the thousands of human languages can accurately communicate and translate what the Word of God says. But you don't have that in Islam. So when they were talking about flushing Qurans, they weren't talking about those English uh, penguin editions that you pick up down at Barnes & Noble. That has no value in the eyes of, of, a, of a Muslim. It's only the Arabic uh, translations, and they view that. They've ido- uh, uh, really made an idol out of the Quran, and they worship that as having its own uh, aspect of deity. But the writer here quotes from the Septuagint, so that gives you an interesting theory of language. Also, makes, It also indicates that there was a set and stable canon of the Old Testament understood at this time. He's quoting from these books as authoritative, and if some books are authoritative, what does that imply? That other books are not authoritative. That there is a strict canon, an accepted canon, and that indicates that the Jews, and we know from other literature that by the 3rd century B.C., the Jews 
recognized that God was no longer speaking and that the canon was closed. It, you'll, you'll usually hear the human viewpoint critics say that the Old Testament canon was decided by the rabbis at the Council of Yamnia in A.D. 95. But that isn't what they did at all. They weren't deciding the canon. They were deciding certain administrative and organizational issues with relation to the canon, but they weren't making decisions as to what was included and what was excluded. And there's evidence from Josephus, from Philo, from uh, Jesus, from statements made by the rabbis uh, earlier in the intertestamental period that the canon was clearly set and finalized and that in the transmission of the canon, God was overseeing its preservation. Okay, that's the fifth point. It relates to the writer quotes from the Septuagint, which indicates a fixed authority, a canon, an already set canon, as well as a recognition that God can still communicate truth in translation. Now, some of the translations we've got today are a little far-fetched. You know, you get the message and you get the uh, cotton patch gospel and some of these that are extreme paraphrases. I'm not sure that, that that works, but it applies to a fairly decent translation. That was the fifth point. Sixth point is that in the course of the epistle, he challenges Christians by, by exposing God's patterns of history. And he is a master of going back into Old Testament history and looking at the patterns that you find in the Old Testament and then bringing those over to show how they foreshadowed various aspects about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he specifically does that in relationship to events surrounding the Exodus and the giving of the Mosaic Law, and secondly, in relationship to David and the Davidic Covenant. So all of this relates to his use of the Old Testament. And right away we know we're going to have to dig around in the Old Testament to figure out what was going on. Now we get into verse 5. Verse 5 begins with the English word for, which even in English indicates an explanation, but it's the Greek word gar, which indicates that you are explaining the reason behind something that you have already stated. He is going to explain why Jesus was eleva- is elevated over the angels. And he's not just going to do this from a, let's say, an abstract theological perspective. He's going to do it by going back into the Old Testament and taking these eight scriptures, and he's going to base his argument on these eight scriptures and weave them together in a fantastic pattern of doctrinal development. Because in some of these cases, as we'll see, if you read them, read those passages in their original context, you wouldn't necessarily get this application. But what he does is he takes them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and weaves these points together in order to substantiate the superiority of Christ and, the, and the, his Davidic Messiahship over the angels. So we come to verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, and then he quotes Psalm 2-7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, second verse, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And that comes from Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. 
So now we need to take some time to go back and look at what's going on in Psalm 2-7 and also 2 Samuel 7-14. Now what I'm going to do is take us by a, a slight diversion. We talked about the ascension and session last week by way of introduction, and we're going to hit it again, and we're going to go to Psalm 2 by way of Daniel chapter 7. So let's just put a little chart up here to remind ourselves of some of the aspects of the ascension and session. There are four key passages in the Old Testament that New Testament writers go to to understand what's happening at the ascension and session of Christ. The first is Psalm 68, specifically Psalm 68:18, which is quoted and applied actually by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, where he takes uh, the Old Testament situation where they, uh, David is writing a victory psalm as the Ark of the Covenant, as the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament, is taken up on the Mount Zion, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, as a result of the final victories that David has uh, had over the last stronghold of the Canaanites. There's still pockets of Canaanites around. They're going to be a problem for several more years. But in terms of major strongholds, the final stronghold in Jerusalem, the place where the Jebusites dwelt, was defeated by uh, they were defeated by David. This is described in Second Samuel chapter five. Then in Second Samuel chapter six. They take the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem in this incredible ceremony where David is dressed like a priest. And, of course, that is he's not a priest. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. So he is not uh, acting in line with a Levitical priesthood, but with an even more ancient priesthood, that of Melchizedek. So you see what's happening here is we're tying elements together from that which we studied on Tuesday night with Genesis and also we'll see before we're done tonight elements from our study on Sunday night in Revelation. So Psalm 68 is a picture of the ascension taken from the Old Testament as a victorious ascent and as a result of his victory over sin and over Satan and the angels at the cross, Jesus Christ is elevated to a position of authority as indicated by the quote from Psalm 68:18. Then Daniel 7:14 gives us information about why he had to ascend in relationship to his future kingdom. And in our review last time, I pointed out that the ascension and session relates to that idea of the kingdom. You have to keep that in focus, that Jesus Christ came offering the kingdom to Israel. John the Baptist mentioned, uh, or, or message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message of Jesus was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message of the disciples was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was about to happen? The kingdom of heaven. But it didn't happen because they rejected Jesus, so the kingdom is postponed to the future. So in Daniel 7.14, we see what happens in the future, that he doesn't get that kingdom until the future. Psalm 2 tells us what's going on now and what will again happen in the future. And then we have Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, Psalm 110, 1, 
is also quoted here in this first chapter of Hebrews. So Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are both part of the argument here in Hebrews chapter 1. So I want you to see how this writer is weaving all these different uh, passages together in order to make his case. We come to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 is filled with all kinds of images of various beasts who represent the kingdoms of man. And these beasts all come out of the sea. And the sea represents the tumultuous chaos of human history. And the first beast is the uh, lion with the wings of an eagle, and that represents the empire of Babylon, the Neo-Caledonian Empire. Uh, Then you have the uh, lopsided bear that's got uh, three ribs in his mouth, and that's the Media-Persian Empire. And then you have the four-headed leopard, and that is the... Greek Empire under Alexander, and then its division into four smaller empires after his death. And then you have the arrival of this last empire, which is represented by this great and horrible beast who has ten horns, and that represents the Roman Empire, the ancient Roman Empire, and then its future manifestation as the revived Roman Empire centering around ten powerful kings or ten nations. Now, that's the flow of human history. And in Daniel, God represents the best and the brightest of human history as bestial. This is not a compliment to human empire building or nation building. This is an insult. This pictures us as being bestial. Uh, the, The picture of the beautiful image of gold, silver, and Brass in Daniel chapter 2 is a picture of human empires from man's perspective. We think it's something valuable, but God looks at it as something that is bestial. Man is not what he was intended to be by God. Sin has distorted his nature. And these bestial kingdoms are going to be destroyed by one who comes who is like the Son of Man. And so we read in Daniel 7, verse 9, that Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, the Ancient of Days is the first personality that we run into here, and this is God the Father. But I want you to see if you recognize anything in this description. Does anything sound familiar? His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Where do you find that? Revelation chapter 1. That when John is on Patmos and the Lord Jesus Christ appears to him, he says his hair was white, white as snow, white like wool. And his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. This is the judgment seat of heaven, the supreme court of heaven. And then in verse 10, Daniel says, A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. And this has its parallel passages and descriptions in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Now, let me stop here a minute. We're going to pull all this stuff together. This is one of those great global lessons where you tie a lot of threads together. In Revelation 4 and 5, which we'll get to eventually, 
you see a picture of the throne room of God. And around the throne room of God, you have the living beast, the angels, and you have the 24 elders. And John appears, he's caught up into the third heaven, and he's before the throne of God, and he looks around, and he sees the angels coming out, and the angels are are, are, are bemoaning the fact that they have this scroll, this, this uh, title deed is really what it is. It is this scroll that is written on the inside and on the outside, and it's sealed. There are seven seals on this document, which was standard in the legal practice in the Roman world. They would take a, a title deed and the private information that was not to be uh, observed was rolled up on the inside, and then the outside would give information that people could read and was public and available to everyone. And they would seal it up with these seven seals. And they're looking for someone who can open the seven seals. And opening the seven seals is indicative of taking ownership of what is in the scroll. And the scroll possesses or, or contains the title to the to planet Earth and to uh, royalty over and, and leadership over the human race. Now, that's our picture. So we see an element of that here in Daniel 7.10. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, the Ancient of Days. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And then in verse 13 we read, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now, that same imagery is picked up in Revelation chapter 1, the clouds of heaven. But here we have a special term, one like a son of man. He's not a beast like these other kingdoms. He is a human. He represents pure and true humanity. And this is a title that the Lord Jesus Christ picks up and uses some 70 times in the Gospels to refer to himself. And the only place it's used before the Gospels is this passage. So Jesus Christ constantly identifies himself with this figure. This is the Messiah. And one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he's presented before the throne of God. And it is at this point in time, which is still future, that he receives what? In verse 14, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. See, he is given ownership of planet Earth, that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will never cease. Okay, what do we learn from Daniel 7? First of all, that every nation, the goal is that every nation might serve him in his kingdom. It's not simply a Jewish kingdom. See, that was part of the problem the Jews had when Jesus came, is they thought the kingdom was only going to be made up of Jews. But what we see from Daniel 7 is it's comprised of every tribe, of every nation. It expands the concept of the kingdom. The second thing we see is from the phrase, to him was given. See, at this particular point in time, the Messiah is given the kingdom. Five minutes before that, he doesn't have the kingdom. There is no kingdom. Five years before that, he doesn't have the kingdom. There's no kingdom. Five centuries before that, he doesn't have the kingdom. The point is, the giving of the kingdom occurs right before 
He comes back at the second coming. When he comes to destroy all these human nations, and of course that occurs at the end of the tribulation period. So that means that right now there's no kingdom. We're not living in a form of the kingdom like the amillennialists would say. We're not living in some spiritualized form of the kingdom. We can't bring in the kingdom, which is what the post mills want to do. That kingdom doesn't happen until God the Father gives it to the Son. And then in Daniel 7.18 we read, But the saints of the highest one. Now, saints is a term that does, is not restricted to just Jews from the Old Testament or church-age believers from the church age. It simply means holy ones, believers. And it, it, it can be an umbrella term that encompasses both Old Testament saints and New Testament church-age believers. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now that's what happens at the end of the tribulation period. So there is a period prior to that when there is no kingdom and the son doesn't receive the kingdom. And that's what's happening in Psalm 2. Psalm 2. So Daniel 7, all that we're getting out of Daniel 7 is a recognition that there's a point in the future when the son of man which is a title that's related to his Son of David title. They both relate to humanity, that he is given the kingdom, and that's at some future time. Now we come to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 is a royal messianic psalm. In the first three verses, we get a picture of the nations on the earth shaking their fists in rage at God in a conspiracy and a coalition to prevent the coming of the millennial kingdom or the Messiah. It is a picture of all of humanity now has allied themselves together in order to prevent the inauguration of the millennial kingdom. And so the writer begins with the question, why are the nations in an uproar and the people's devising a vain thing. And the picture you see here is everybody is frantic trying to come up with some plan, some strategy in order to prevent the Messiah from coming. All of humanity is united against him. Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand. This is all the nations, not just the revived Roman Empire, but all the nations, the, the kings of the east, the kings of the south, King of the north, all the kings of the earth take their stand. And where does that ultimately lead to? Armageddon, that great plain of Esdralon in Israel. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. So those first two lines are in synonymous parallelism. And the focus of their conspiracy is the Lord. They take their counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Who's the Lord here? The Lord is God the Father. His anointed is the Messiah. That's what Mashiach means, is the anointed one. This is God the Son, the Messiah. So all of the rulers of the earth are taking their stand against God the Father and God the Son, who is the Mashiach. Now this is what the rulers of the earth say. Let us tear their fetters apart. See, fallen man looks upon God's authority as nothing more than 
negative restrictions. God doesn't want us to really be all that we can be. God is just wants to destroy all of our party time. He doesn't want us to have any fun. All of His mandates, all of His laws are nothing more than fetters, chains, bonds. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the words of the rebellious kings of the earth. This is God's response. He just laughs at them in derision. They're nothing more than ants trying to lead a rebellion against Him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, that is God the Father, the supreme judge. This is the Ancient of Days over there in Daniel 7. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He, that is the Father, will speak to them in His anger. That's the outworking of His justice. Then God the Father will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, and the then is a temporal adverb. When does this take place? It takes place after they rebel, after they come together in this coalition. Has that happened yet in history? No, it hasn't. So the events of verse 5 and following don't take place until after you have this worldwide coalition in rebellion against God. This is what he says. God the Father speaking, verse 6. You have to pay attention in Psalm 2 as to who's speaking, otherwise you'll really get confused. Psalm 2, 6. But as for me, who's speaking? God the Father. As for me, I have installed my king. Who's my king? It's the anointed one. It's the Messiah. I have installed my king upon Zion. Now, where's this king going to come from? Where's that king come from? The king that's going to be on Mount Zion. Remember, this is the same Mount Zion that Psalm 68:18 talked about, that the that the ark was being taken up on the uh, up on the mountain. Well, this king goes back to the Davidic covenant. The Hebrew word for installed is nasak, and it means to install or to inaugurate a leader. Once again, it implies that that until he puts the king on planet Earth, on Mount Zion, he's not the king. He's not inaugurated yet. You see, we're not in some spiritual form of the kingdom. There's not a king yet. It's not until God installs or inaugurates the Lord Jesus Christ on Zion that we have a king and a kingdom. Now, this goes back to understanding the Abrahamic covenant, which we've gone over many times. Three key ideas, land, seed, and blessing. The land aspect was expanded in the Israel land covenant, or sometimes referred to as the Palestinian covenant. The seed is the part we're interested in here. This is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, 7.14 is what's quoted in the second part of, of Hebrews 1.5. The first part of Hebrews 1.5 is Psalm 2.7. And the writer of Hebrews pulls this verse out of Psalm 2, verse 7, and he pulls another verse out of, Psalm, uh, out of 2 Samuel 7.14, and he connects them to make sure we understand that the son that is installed on Mount Zion in Psalm 2.5 is the Davidic sonship, the Messianic sonship that's explained in 2 Samuel 7. And, of course, the third dimension of the Abrahamic covenant is the new covenant, which is not part of our study. 2 Samuel 7.12 gives us the Davidic covenant. 
God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. See, there's that same terminology we have in the Abrahamic covenant talking about seed. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, if you're going to establish somebody's throne forever, what do you have to have? You either have to have an ongoing succession of father, son, grandson, and on and on and on that goes on for all eternity, or you have to have the line end with someone who's eternal. So embedded right here in verse 13 is the idea that the king who's going to sit on the throne is going to have a divine dimension. He's going to be eternal. But because he is from David, he has a human aspect. So embedded here, if you really think about it, you have a, a, the implication of a God-man. That the perfect ideal king for Israel isn't just a human, he has to be divine. He can't be human because the human race is fallen, so there has to be a, a, a unity or a union of humanity and deity. And then in verse 14, God says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. See, that's the phrase that's picked up and quoted in Hebrews 2, 5b. Of course, there's a near fulfillment there in relationship to Solomon. That's why it says, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men. That applied to Solomon and to the Davidic kings that were not human, but of course it would not apply to the ultimate uh, figure, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2.7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Now, who's speaking here? I will tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord is the Father, so the I is the Son, the Son that's being installed on Mount Zion. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. This is what the Lord, God the Father, said to me, God the Son. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Today I declare, is a corrected translation, I declare that you are my begotten one. That word begotten is, it's an interesting form in the Hebrew. It could be, uh, you, you, the vowel points, of course, were all added much later by the, uh, by the Masoretes. So if you look at the, at the consonants, it could be either a cal stem or a hyphial. Now, the reason that's important is the hyphial stem is a decausative or declarative stem. And that would shift the meaning from simply saying, today I have begotten you, to the idea, today I declare that you are my begotten one. It is a declaration. Now, the word decree, we've built this up, our time's almost up, but I want to tie this together because we're not going to get to everything on this tonight. But I want to tie this one little uh, ribbon of things together before we quit. I will, the, the Lord Jesus Christ says, at the time that he is installed on the mountain, he looks back to, a earlier, to an earlier time when a decree was made. And at that future date, at the second coming, he says, I'm going to tell you about a decree that was made earlier. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. Now, this word decree is an interesting word. 
little word. It's the Hebrew word chok, C-H-O-Q, and it refers to a written decree, something that was engraved, uh, which usually applied to a statute or a law, some kind of legal document. It was used in many contexts to indicate a written title deed. Uh, for example, in Genesis 47:22, it refers to a certain portion of land that was allotted or apportioned to Joseph. Now think about this a minute. He, the, the writer of, of Psalm 2, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses a word that has a, has a specific application besides just a general concept of a decree. It has a specific concept of relating in, to something that is allotted or apportioned. Now, look at verse 8. What, part of what the decree includes is, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. That's your apportionment. Now, what's he receiving when he's receiving all that? He's receiving a title deed. And he's going to get the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now, remember a little while ago I said that there's an an illusion in in Daniel 7. There's pictures there. Uh, The imagery is is similar to that which is in Revelation 4 and 5, the throne room of God. In the throne room of God, what's happening? The angels are looking for someone who's qualified to cut the seals, to open that scroll. And they are desperate to find someone who is worthy to open the scroll. And they are so desperate, and the scene is so intense, that it says that John, who has been taken to heaven, bursts into tears. He weeps loudly. It's a strong Greek word for weeping. He's not just sitting up there crying a little bit. He is bawling. He is just at his wit's end because he realizes there's no one who is worthy to take the scroll. And then comes the Lamb. I mean, one of the most dramatic passages in the Scripture. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. And the Lamb steps forward and he takes the scroll and he starts to cut the seals. Those seals are the first seven seal judgments in Revelation. And it pictures the fact that the, all of the tribulation is really the, the, the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of God being poured out on the earth to prepare the earth for His final coming at the second coming to take His rightful place as the Davidic Son, as the Messianic heir who is going to uh, take possession of the earth. This is why he's been elevated to such a position. Now, when you think about all of this, the picture that you have in your head right now is a picture of the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ that goes far beyond anything that most Christians ever think about in terms of who Jesus is. This is a picture of a mighty, glorious ruler who is going to come back to the earth and he's going to literally take possession away from the kings of the earth through an entire series of horrendous judgments that take place in the tribulation. That's why we're not going to be here. He's not going to uh, take that wrath out on the lamb, I mean on, on the bride. We're the bride of Christ. You don't beat up the bride before you get married. You uh, purify the bride. So the bride will be removed and then he will come back.
Now, we've run out of time, but next time we'll come back, go over some of this in Psalm 2-7 again to make sure that uh, we understand its implications, tie it into uh, uh, 2 Samuel, and then move on through the rest of Hebrews 1. The main point here is it talks about the new position of Christ over the angels. Hebrews 1, 5, and 6 develop that whole theme of his current position. You have to have a position before you have power. And then from verses 7 down through the end of the chapter, 7 through 14, is the development of his authority and his power. So that's what the rest of this chapter is all about. The position of Christ over the angels and his power or authority. And then when we get to chapter 2, it develops the implications of this and why it needs to radically change what you think about your spiritual life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this evening to get this great understanding of who our Lord Jesus Christ is and what he is doing today and how this fits into our future destiny in eternity. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.